0: Chapter Twenty Five of Rainbow Valley by Lucy Maud Montgomery. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Karen Savage. Chapter Twenty Five: Another Scandal and Another Explanation. Faith went early to Sunday school and was seated in the corner of her class pew before anyone came. Therefore, the dreadful truth did not burst upon anyone until Faith left the class pew near the door to walk up to the manse pew after Sunday school. The church was already half filled and all who were sitting near the aisle saw that the minister's daughter had boots on but no stockings. Faith's new brown dress, which Aunt Martha had made from an ancient pattern, was absurdly long for her, but even so it did not meet her boot-tops. Two good inches of bare white leg showed plainly. Faith and Carl sat alone in the man's pew. Jerry had gone into the gallery to sit with a chum and the Blythe girls had taken Una with them. The Meredith children were given to sitting all over the church in this fashion, and a great many people thought it very improper. The gallery especially, where irresponsible lads congregated and were known to whisper and suspected of chewing tobacco during service, was no place for a son of the manse. But Jerry hated the manse pew at the very top of the church, under the eyes of Elder Clow and his family. He escaped from it whenever he could. Carl, absorbed in watching a spider spinning its web at the window, did not notice Faith's legs. She walked home with her father after church and he never noticed them. She got on the hated striped stockings before Jerry and Una arrived so that for the time being none of the occupants of the manse knew what she had done. But nobody else in Glen St. Mary was ignorant of it. The few who had not seen soon heard. Nothing else was talked of on the way home from church mrs alec davis said it was only what she expected and the next thing you would see some of those young ones coming to church with no clothes on at all the president of the ladies aid decided that she would bring the matter up at the next aid meeting and suggest that they wait in a body on the minister and protest miss cornelia said that she for her part gave up there was no use worrying over the man's fry any longer even mrs dr blythe felt a little shocked though she attributed the occurrence solely to faith's forgetfulness Susan could not immediately begin knitting stockings for Faith, because it was Sunday, but she had one set up before anyone else was out of bed at Ingleside the next morning. "'You need not tell me anything but that it was old Martha's fault, Mrs. Doctor, dear,' she told Anne. "'I suppose that poor little child had no decent stockings to wear. I suppose every stocking she had was in holes—as you know very well they generally are.' And I think, Mrs. Dr. dear, that the ladies' aid would be better employed in knitting some for them than in fighting over the new carpet for the pulpit platform. I am not a lady's aider but I shall knit Faith two pairs of stockings out of this nice black yarn as fast as my fingers can move and that you may tie to. Never shall I forget my sensations, Mrs. Dr. dear, when I saw a minister's child walking up the aisle of our church with no stockings on. I really did not know what way to look. "'And the church was just full of Methodists yesterday, too,' groaned Miss Cornelia, who had come up to the Glen to do some shopping and run into Ingleside to talk the affair over. "'I don't know how it is, but just as sure as those Mans children do something especially awful the church is sure to be crowded with Methodists. I thought Mrs. Deacon Hazard's eyes would drop out of her head. When she came out of church she said, "'Well, that exhibition was no more than decent.' I do pity the Presbyterians. And we just had to take it. There was nothing one could say." There was something I could have said, Mrs. Dr. dear, if I had heard her," said Susan grimly. I would have said, for one thing, that in my opinion clean bare legs were quite as decent as holes. And I would have said, for another, that the Presbyterians did not feel greatly in need of pity, seeing that they had a minister who could preach, and the Methodists had not. I could have quelched Mrs. Deacon Hazard, Mrs. Dr. dear, and that you may tie to." "'I wish Mr. Meredith didn't preach quite so well and looked after his family a little better,' retorted Miss Cornelia. "'He could at least glance over his children before they went to church and see that they were properly clothed. I'm tired of making excuses for him, believe me!' Meanwhile Faith's soul was being harrowed up in Rainbow Valley. Mary Vance was there and, as usual, in a lecturing mood she gave faith to understand that she had disgraced herself and her father beyond redemption and that she mary vance was done with her everybody was talking and everybody said the same thing i simply feel that i can't associate with you any longer she concluded we are going to associate with her then cried nan blythe nan secretly thought faith had done an awful thing but she wasn't going to let Mary Vance run matters in this high-handed fashion. And if you are not you needn't come any more to Rainbow Valley, Miss Vance." Nan and Di both put their arms around Faith and glared defiance at Mary. The latter suddenly crumpled up, sat down on a stump, and began to cry. "'It ain't that I don't want to,' she wailed. "'But if I keep in with Faith people will be saying I put her up to doing things. Some are saying it now, true's as you live. I can't afford to have such things said of me now that I'm in a respectable place and trying to be a lady. And I never went bare-legged in church in my toughest days. I never a thought of doing such a thing. But that hateful old Kitty Alex says Faith has never been the same girl since that time I stayed in the manse. She says Cornelia Elliot will live to rue the day she took me in. It hurts my feelings, I tell you, but it's Mr. Meredith I'm really worried over." "'I think you needn't worry about him.' said Di scornfully, it isn't likely necessary. Now, Faith, darling, stop crying and tell us why you did it." Faith explained tearfully. The Blythe girl sympathized with her and even Mary Vance agreed that it was a hard position to be in. But Jerry, on whom the thing came like a thunderbolt, refused to be placated. So this was what some mysterious hints he had got in school that day meant. He marched Faith and Una home without ceremony and the Good Conduct Club held an immediate session in the graveyard to sit in judgment on Faith's case. "'I don't see that it was any harm,' said Faith defiantly. "'Not much of my legs showed. It wasn't wrong and it didn't hurt anybody.' "'It will hurt Dad. You know it will. You know people blame him whenever we do anything queer.' "'I didn't think of that,' muttered Faith. "'That's just the trouble. You didn't think and you should have thought. That's what our club is for—to bring us up and make us think. We promised we'd always stop and think before doing things. You didn't, and you've got to be punished, Faith. And real hard, too. You'll wear those striped socks to school for a week, for punishment. Oh, Jerry, won't a day do? Two days? Not a whole week. Yes, a whole week, said inexorable Jerry. It is fair. Ask Jem Blythe if it isn't. Faith felt she would rather submit than ask Jem Blythe about such a matter. She was beginning to realize that her offense was quite a shameful one. "'I'll do it, then,' she muttered a little sulkily. "'You're getting off easy,' said Jerry severely. "'And no matter how we punish you it won't help Father. People will always think you just did it for mischief and they'll blame Father for not stopping it. We can never explain it to everybody.'" This aspect of the case weighed on Faith's mind. Her own condemnation she could bear, but it tortured her that her father should be blamed. If people knew the true facts of the case they would not blame him, but how could she make them known to all the world? Getting up in church, as she had once done, and explaining the matter was out of the question. Faith had heard from Mary Vance how the congregation had looked upon that performance and realized that she must not repeat it. Faith worried over the problem for half a week. Then she had an inspiration and promptly acted upon it. She spent that evening in the garret with a lamp and an exercise-book, writing busily, with flushed cheeks and shining eyes. It was the very thing—how clever she was to have thought of it! It would put everything right and explain everything and yet cause no scandal. It was eleven o'clock when she had finished to her satisfaction and crept down to bed, dreadfully tired but perfectly happy. In a few days the little weekly published in the Glen under the name of The Journal came out as usual and the Glen had another sensation. A letter signed, Faith Meredith, occupied a prominent place on the front page and ran as follows. To whom it may concern. I want to explain to everybody how it was I came to go to church without stockings on, so that everybody will know that Father was not to blame one bit for it, and the old gossips need not say he is because it is not true. I gave my only pair of black stockings to Lida Marsh because she hadn't any and her poor little feet were awful cold and I was so sorry for her. No child ought to have to go without shoes and stockings in a Christian community before the snow is all gone, and I think the W.F.M.S. ought to have given her stockings. Of course I know they are sending things to the little heathen children and that is all right and a kind thing to do but the little heathen children have lots more warm weather than we have and I think the women of our church ought to look after Lida and not leave it all to me. When I gave her my stockings I forgot they were the only black pair I had without holes, but I'm glad I did give them to her because my conscience would have been uncomfortable if I hadn't. When she had gone away, looking so proud and happy, the poor little thing, I remembered that all I had to wear were the horrid red and blue things Aunt Martha knit last winter for me out of some yarn that Mrs. Joseph Burr of Upper Glen sent us. It was dreadfully coarse yarn and all knots and I never saw any of Mrs. Burr's own children wearing things made of such yarn. But Mary Vance says Mrs. Burr gives the minister stuff that she can't use or eat herself and thinks it ought to go as part of the salary her husband signed to pay but never does." I just couldn't bear to wear those hateful stockings. They were so ugly and rough and felt so scratchy. Everybody would have made fun of me. I thought at first I'd pretend to be sick and just not go to church next day, but I decided I couldn't do that because it would be acting a lie and Father told us after Mother died that was something we must never, never do. It is just as bad to act a lie as to tell one, though I know some people right here in the Glen who act them and never seem to feel a bit bad about it. I will not mention any names, but I know who they are and so does Father. Then I tried my best to catch cold and really be sick by standing on the snowbank in the Methodist graveyard with my bare feet until Jerry pulled me off. But it didn't hurt me a bit and so I couldn't get out of going to church. So I just decided I would put my boots on and go that way. I can't see why it was so wrong and I was so careful to wash my legs just as clean as my face. But anyway, Father wasn't to blame for it. He was in the study thinking of his sermon and other heavenly things, and I kept out of his way before I went to Sunday school. Father does not look at people's legs in church so of course he did not notice mine. But all the gossips did and talked about it and that is why I'm writing this letter to the journal to explain. I suppose I did very wrong, since everybody says so, and I am sorry and I am wearing those awful stockings to punish myself, although Father bought me two nice new black pairs as soon as Mr. Flagg's store opened on Monday morning but it was all my fault and if people blame Father for it after they read this they are not Christians and so I do not mind what they say. There is another thing I want to explain about before I stop. Mary Vance told me that Mr. Evan Boyd is blaming the Lou Baxters for stealing potatoes out of his field last fall. They did not touch his potatoes. They are very poor but they are honest. It was us did it—Jerry and Carl and I. Una was not with us at the time. We never thought it was stealing. We just wanted a few potatoes to cook over a fire in Rainbow Valley one evening to eat with our fried trout. Mr. Boyd's field was the nearest, just between the valley and the village, so we climbed over his fence and pulled up some stalks. The potatoes were awfully small because Mr. Boyd did not put enough fertilizer on them and we had to pull up a lot of stalks before we got enough. And then they were not much bigger than marbles. Walter and Di Blythe helped us eat them, but they did not come along until we had them cooked and did not know where we got them. So they were not to blame at all—only us. We didn't mean any harm, but if it was stealing we are very sorry and we will pay Mr. Boyd for them if he will wait until we grow up. We never have any money now because we are not big enough to earn any, and Aunt Martha says it takes every cent of poor father's salary, even when it is paid up regularly—and it isn't often—to run this house." But Mr. Boyd must not blame the Lou Baxters any more when they were quite innocent and give them a bad name. Yours respectfully, Faith Meredith. End of chapter 25. Chapter 26 of Rainbow Valley by Lucy Maud Montgomery. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Karen Savage. Chapter 26 Miss Cornelia Gets a New Point of View. "'Susan, after I'm dead I'm going to come back to earth every time when the daffodils blow in this garden,' said Anne rapturously. "'Nobody may see me, but I'll be here. If anybody is in the garden at the time—I think I'll come on an evening just like this, but it might be just at dawn—a lovely pale pinky spring dawn. They'll just see the daffodils nodding wildly as if an extra gust of wind had blown past them. But it will be I. Indeed, Mrs. Dr. dear, you will not be thinking of flaunting worldly things like Daffy's after you are dead," said Susan, and I do not believe in ghosts, seen or unseen. Oh, Susan, I shall not be a ghost. That has a horrible sound. I shall just be me. And I shall run around in the twilight, whether it is morn or eve, and see all the spots I love. Do you remember how badly I felt when I left our little house of dreams, Susan? I thought I could never love Ingleside so well. But I do—I love every inch of the ground and every stick and stone on it." I am rather fond of the place myself," said Susan, who would have died if she had been removed from it. But we must not set our affections too much on earthly things, Mrs. Dr. dear. There are such things as fires and earthquakes. We should always be prepared. The Tom McAllister's over-harbour were burned out three nights ago. Some say Tom McAllister set the house on fire himself to get the insurance—that may or may not be but I advise the doctor to have our chimneys seen to at once. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. But I see Mrs. Marshall Elliott coming in at the gate, looking as if she had been sent for and couldn't go." "'Anne, dearie, have you seen the journal today? Miss Cornelia's voice was trembling, partly from emotion, partly from the fact that she had hurried up from the store too fast and lost her breath. Anne bent over the daffodils to hide a smile. She and Gilbert had laughed heartily and heartlessly over the front page of the journal that day, but she knew that to dear Miss Cornelia it was almost a tragedy and she must not wound her feelings by any display of levity. "'Isn't it dreadful? What IS to be done?' asked Miss Cornelia despairingly. Miss Cornelia had vowed that she was done with worrying over the pranks of the man's children, but she went on worrying just the same. Anne led the way to the veranda where Susan was knitting, with Shirley and Rilla conning their primers on either side. Susan was already on her second pair of stockings for Faith. Susan never worried over poor humanity. She did what in her lay for its betterment and serenely left the rest to the higher powers. Cornelia Elliot thinks she was born to run this world, Mrs. Dr. dear, she had once said to Anne, and so she is always in a stew over something. I have never thought that I was, and so I go calmly along. Not but what it has sometimes occurred to me that things might be run a little better than they are. But it is not for us poor worms to nourish such thoughts. They only make us uncomfortable and do not get us anywhere." "'I don't see that anything can be done now,' said Anne, pulling out a nice cushiony chair for Miss Cornelia. "'But how in the world did Mr. Vickers allow that letter to be printed? Surely he should have known better.' "'Why, he's away, Anne dearie.' He's been away to New Brunswick for a week. And that young scallywag of a Joe Vickers is editing the journal in his absence. Of course Mr. Vickers would never have put it in, even if he IS a Methodist. But Joe would just think it a good joke. As you say, I don't suppose there is anything to be done now—only live it down. But if I ever get Joe Vickers cornered somewhere, I'll give him a talking to he won't forget in a hurry." I wanted Marshall to stop our subscription to the journal instantly, but he only laughed and said that today's issue was the only one that had had anything readable in it for a year. Marshall never will take anything seriously—just like a man. Fortunately Evan Boyd is like that, too. He takes it as a joke and is laughing all over the place about it. And he's another Methodist. As for Mrs. Burr of Upper Glen, of course she will be furious and they will leave the church. Not that it will be a great loss from my point of view the Methodists are quite welcome to them." "'It serves Mrs. Burr right,' said Susan, who had an old feud with the lady in question, and had been hugely tickled over the reference to her in Faith's letter. She will find that she will not be able to cheat the Methodist parson out of his salary with bad yarn." "'The worst of it is, there's not much hope of things getting any better,' said Miss Cornelia gloomily. As long as Mr. Meredith was going to see Rosemary West, I did hope the manse would soon have a proper mistress. But that is all off. I suppose she wouldn't have him on account of the children. At least everybody seems to think so." "'I do not believe that he ever asked her,' said Susan, who could not conceive of anyone refusing a minister. "'Well, nobody knows anything about that. But one thing is certain—he doesn't go there any longer. And Rosemary didn't look well all the spring. I hope her visit to Kingsport will do her good. She's been gone for a month and will stay another month, I understand.' I can't remember when Rosemary was away from home before. She and Ellen could never bear to be parted. But I understand Ellen insisted on her going this time. And, meanwhile, Ellen and Norman Douglas are warming up the old soup." "'Is that really so?' asked Anne, laughing. I heard a rumor of it, but I hardly believed it." "'Believe it? You may believe it all right, Anne dearie. Nobody is in ignorance of it.' Norman Douglas never left anybody in doubt as to his intentions in regard to anything. He always did his courting before the public. He told Marshall that he hadn't thought about Ellen for years, but the first time he went to church last fall he saw her and fell in love with her all over again. He said he'd clean forgot how handsome she was. He hadn't seen her for twenty years, if you can believe it. Of course he never went to church and Ellen never went anywhere else around here. Oh, we all know what Norman means. But what Ellen means is a different matter. I shan't take it upon me to predict whether it will be a match or not." "'He jilted her once. But it seems that does not count with some people, Mrs. Dr. dear,' Susan remarked rather acidly. "'He jilted her in a fit of temper, and repented it all his life,' said Miss Cornelia. That is different from a cold-blooded jilting. For my part, I never detested Norman, as some folks do. He could never overcrow me. I do wonder what started him coming to church." I have never been able to believe Mrs. Wilson's story—that Faith Meredith went there and bullied him into it. I've always intended to ask Faith herself, but I've never happened to think of it just when I saw her. What influence could she have over Norman Douglas? He was in the store when I left, bellowing with laughter over that scandalous letter—you could have heard him at Four Winds Point. "'The greatest girl in the world!' he was shouting. "'She's that full of spunk, she's bursting with it. And all the old grannies want to tame her, darn them but they'll never be able to do it—never. They might as well try to drown a fish. Boyd, see that you put more fertilizer on your potatoes next year. Ho, ho, ho!" And then he laughed till the roof shook. "'Mr. Douglas pays well to the salary at least,' remarked Susan. "'Oh, Norman isn't mean in some ways. He'd give a thousand without blinking a lash and roar like a bull of Bashan if he had to pay five cents too much for anything.' Besides, he likes Mr. Meredith's sermons, and Norman Douglas was always willing to shell out if he got his brains tickled up. There is no more Christianity about him than there is about a black-naked heathen in Africa—and never will be. But he's clever and well-read, and he judges sermons as he would lectures. Anyhow, it's well he backs up Mr. Meredith and the children as he does, for they'll need friends more than ever after this. I am tired of making excuses for them, believe me." Do You know, dear Miss Cornelia," said Anne seriously, I think we have all been making too many excuses. It is very foolish and we ought to stop it. I am going to tell you what I'd like to do. I shan't do it, of course. Anne had noted a glint of alarm in Susan's eye. It would be too unconventional and we must be conventional or die after we reach what is supposed to be a dignified age. But I'd like to do it. I'd like to call a meeting of the Ladies' Aid and W.M.S. and the Girls' Sewing Society and include in the audience all and any Methodists who have been criticizing the Merediths. Although I do think if we Presbyterians stopped criticizing and excusing we would find that other denominations would trouble themselves very little about our manse folks. I would say to them, Dear Christian friends—with marked emphasis on Christian—I have something to say to you, and I want to say it good and hard, that you may take it home and repeat it to your families you methodists need not pity us and we presbyterians need not pity ourselves we are not going to do it any more we are going to say boldly and truthfully to all critics and sympathisers we are proud of our minister and his family mr meredith is the best preacher glen st mary church ever had Moreover, he is a sincere, earnest teacher of truth and Christian charity. He is a faithful friend, a judicious pastor in all essentials, and a refined, scholarly, well-bred man. His family are worthy of him. Gerald Meredith is the cleverest pupil in the Glen School, and Mr. Hazard says that he is destined to a brilliant career. He is a manly, honourable, truthful little fellow. Faith Meredith is a beauty, and as inspiring and original as she is beautiful. There is nothing commonplace about her. All the other girls in the Glen put together haven't the vim and wit and joyousness and spunk she has. She has not an enemy in the world. Everyone who knows her loves her. Of how many, children or grown-ups, can that be said? Una Meredith is sweetness personified. She will make a most lovable woman. Carl Meredith, with his love for ants and frogs and spiders, will some day be a naturalist whom all Canada—nay, all the world—will delight to honour. Do you know of any other family in the Glen or out of it of whom all these things can be said? Away with shamefaced excuses and apologies! We rejoice in our minister and his splendid boys and girls." Anne stopped partly because she was out of breath after her vehement speech and partly because she could not trust herself to speak further in view of Miss Cornelia's face. That good lady was staring helplessly at Anne, apparently engulfed in billows of new ideas. But she came up with a gasp and struck out for shore gallantly. "'Anne Blythe, I wish you would call that meeting and say just that. You've made me ashamed of myself, for one, and far be it for me to refuse to admit it.' Of course that is how we should have talked—especially to the Methodists. And it's every word of it true—every word. We've just been shutting our eyes to the big worthwhile things and squinting them on the little things that don't really matter a pin's worth. Oh, Anne dearie, I can see a thing when it's hammered into my head. No more apologizing for Cornelia Marshall. I shall hold my head up after this, believe me though I may talk things over with you as usual just to relieve my feelings if the Merediths do any more startling stunts. Even that letter I felt so bad about—why, it's only a good joke, after all, as Norman says. Not many girls would have been cute enough to think of writing it, and all punctuated punctuate it so nicely and not one word misspelled. Just let me hear any Methodist say one word about it. Though all the same I'll never forget Joe Vickers, believe me. Where are the rest of your small fry tonight? Walter and the twins are in Rainbow Valley. Jem is studying in the garret. They are all crazy about Rainbow Valley. Mary Vance thinks it's the only place in the world. She'd be off up here every evening if I let her. But I don't encourage her in gadding. Besides, I miss the creature when she isn't around, Anne dearie. I never thought I'd get so fond of her—not but what I see her faults and try to correct them. But she has never said one saucy word to me since she came to my house and she is a great help. For when all is said and done, Anne, dearie, I am not so young as I once was, and there is no sense denying it. I was fifty nine my last birthday. I don't feel it, but there is no gainsaying the family Bible. End of chapter 26. Chapter 27 of Rainbow Valley by Lucy Maud Montgomery. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Karen Savage. CHAPTER Twenty Seven: A Sacred Concert In spite of Miss Cornelia's new point of view she could not help feeling a little disturbed over the next performance of the man's children. In public she carried off the situation splendidly, saying to all the gossips the substance of what Anne had said in daffodil time, and saying it so pointedly and forcibly that her hearers found themselves feeling rather foolish and began to think that, after all, they were making too much of a childish prank but in private Miss Cornelia allowed herself the relief of bemoaning it to Anne. Anne, dearie, they had a CONCERT in the graveyard last Thursday evening while the Methodist prayer-meeting was going on. There they sat on Hezekiah Pollock's tombstone and sang for a solid hour. Of course I understand it was mostly hymns they sang, and it wouldn't have been quite so bad if they'd done nothing else. But I'm told they finished up with Polly Wally Doodle at full length and that just when Deacon Baxter was praying." "'I was there that night,' said Susan, and although I did not say anything about it to you, Mrs. Dr. dear, I could not help thinking that it was a great pity they picked that particular evening. It was truly blood-curdling to hear them sitting there in that abode of the dead shouting that frivolous song at the tops of their lungs." "'I don't know what you were doing in a Methodist prayer meeting,' said Miss Cornelia acidly. I have never found that Methodism was catching," retorted Susan stiffly. And as I was going to say when I was interrupted, badly as I felt, I did not give in to the Methodists. When Mrs. Deacon Baxter said, as we came out, what a disgraceful exhibition, I said, looking her fairly in the eye, they are all beautiful singers, and none of your choir, Mrs. Baxter, ever bother themselves coming out to your prayer-meeting, it seems. Their voices appear to be in tune only on Sundays. She was quite meek, and I felt that I had snubbed her properly. But I could have done it much more thoroughly, Mrs. Dr. dear, if only they had left out Polly Wally Doodle. It is truly terrible to think of that being sung in a graveyard." Some of those dead folks sang Polly Wally Doodle when they were living, Susan. Perhaps they like to hear it yet, suggested Gilbert. Miss Cornelia looked at him reproachfully, and made up her mind that on some future occasion she would hint to Anne that the doctor should be admonished not to say such things. They might injure his practice. People might get it into their heads that he wasn't orthodox. To be sure, Marshall said even worse things habitually, but then he was not a public man. I understand that their father was in his study all the time, with his windows open, but never noticed them at all. Of course he was lost in a book as usual. But I spoke to him about it yesterday when he called. "'How could you dare, Mrs. Marshall Elliott?' asked Susan rebukingly. "'Dare? It's time somebody dared something why they say he knows nothing about that letter of faith to the journal because nobody liked to mention it to him. He never looks at a journal, of course, but I thought he ought to know of this to prevent any such performances in future. He said he would discuss it with them, but of course he'd never think of it again after he got out of our gate. That man has no sense of humour, Anne, believe me. He preached last Sunday on how to bring up children—a beautiful sermon it was, too—and everybody in church thinking, what a pity you can't practice what you preach." Miss Cornelia did Mr. Meredith an injustice in thinking he would soon forget what she had told him. He went home much disturbed, and when the children came from Rainbow Valley that night, at a much later hour than they should have been prowling in it, he called them into his study. They went in somewhat awed. It was such an unusual thing for their father to do. What could he be going to say to them? They racked their memories for any recent transgression of sufficient importance but could not recall any. Carl had spilled a saucerful of jam on Mrs. Peter Flagg's silk dress two evenings before when, at Aunt Martha's invitation, she had stayed to supper, but Mr. Meredith had not noticed it, and Mrs. Flagg, who was a kindly soul, had made no fuss. Besides, Carl had been punished by having to wear Una's dress all the rest of the evening. Una suddenly thought that perhaps her father meant to tell them he was going to marry Miss West. Her heart began to beat violently and her legs trembled then she saw that mr meredith looked very stern and sorrowful no it could not be that children said mr meredith i have heard something that has pained me very much is it true that you sat out in the graveyard all last thursday evening and sang ribald songs while a prayer-meeting was being held in the methodist church great caesar dad we forgot all about it being their prayer-meeting night exclaimed jerry in dismay then it is true you did do this thing why dad I don't know what you mean by ribald songs. We sang hymns. It was a sacred concert, you know. What harm was that? I tell you we never thought about its being Methodist prayer-meeting night. They used to have their prayer-meeting Tuesday nights, and since they've changed to Thursdays it's hard to remember." Did you sing nothing but hymns? Why, said Jerry, turning red, we did sing Polly Wally Doodle at the last. Faith said let's have something cheerful to wind up with. But we didn't mean any harm, Father. Truly we didn't." The concert was my idea, Father," said Faith, afraid that Mr. Meredith might blame Jerry too much. "'You know the Methodists themselves had a sacred concert in their church three Sunday nights ago. I thought it would be good fun to get one up in imitation of it. Only they had prayers at theirs and we left that part out because we heard that people thought it awful for us to pray in a graveyard. You were sitting in here all the time,' she added, "'and never said a word to us.' "'I did not notice what you were doing. That is no excuse for me, of course. I am more to blame than you. I realize that. But why did you sing that foolish song at the end?" "'We didn't think,' muttered Jerry, feeling that it was a very lame excuse, seeing that he had lectured Faith so strongly in the Good Conduct Club sessions for her lack of thought. "'We're sorry, Father. Truly we are. Pitch into us hard. We deserve a regular combing down.' But Mr. Meredith did no combing down or pitching into. He sat down and gathered his small culprits close to him and talked a little to them, tenderly and wisely. They were overcome with remorse and shame and felt that they could never be so silly and thoughtless again. "'We've just got to punish ourselves good and hard for this,' whispered Jerry as they crept upstairs. "'We'll have a session of the club first thing tomorrow and decide how we'll do it. I never saw Father so cut up. But I wish to goodness the Methodists would stick to one night for their prayer meeting and not wander all over the week.' Anyhow, I'm glad it wasn't what I was afraid it was. murmured una to herself behind them in the study. Mr. Meredith had sat down at his desk and buried his face in his arms. God help me, he said. I'm a poor sort of father, oh, Rosemary, if you had only cared End of chapter twenty seven chapter twenty eight of Rainbow Valley by Lucy Maud Montgomery. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Karen Savage. Chapter 28 A Fast Day. The Good Conduct Club had a special session the next morning before school. After various suggestions, it was decided that a fast day would be an appropriate punishment. We won't eat a single thing for a whole day, said Jerry. I'm kind of curious to see what fasting is like, anyhow. This will be a good chance to find out. What day will we choose for it?" asked Una, who thought it would be quite an easy punishment, and rather wondered that Jerry and Faith had not devised something harder. "'Let's pick Monday,' said Faith. We mostly have a pretty filling dinner on Sundays, and Monday's meals never amount to much anyhow." "'But that's just the point,' exclaimed Jerry. We mustn't take the easiest day to fast but the hardest. And that's Sunday, because, as you say, we mostly have roast beef that day instead of cold ditto. It wouldn't be much punishment to fast from ditto. Let's take next Sunday. It'll be a good day, for Father is going to exchange for the morning service with the Upper Lowbridge minister. Father will be away till evening. If Aunt Martha wonders what's got into us we'll tell her right up that we're fasting for the good of our souls, and it is in the Bible and she is not to interfere, and I guess she won't." Aunt Martha did not. She merely said in her fretful, mumbling way, "'What foolishness are you young rips up to now?' and thought no more about it." Mr. Meredith had gone away early in the morning before any one was up. He went without his breakfast too, but that was, of course, of common occurrence. Half of the time he forgot it and there was no one to remind him of it. Breakfast—Aunt Martha's breakfast—was not a hard meal to miss. Even the hungry young Rips did not feel it any great deprivation to abstain from the lumpy porridge and blue milk which had aroused the scorn of Mary Vance. But it was different at dinner-time. They were furiously hungry then and the odour of roast beef which pervaded the manse and which was wholly delightful, in spite of the fact that the roast beef was badly underdone, was almost more than they could stand. In desperation they rushed to the graveyard where they couldn't smell it. But Una could not keep her eyes from the dining-room window through which the Upper Lowbridge minister could be seen placidly eating. "'If I could only just have a weeny-teeny piece,' she sighed. Now you stop that," commanded Jerry. Of course it's hard, but that's the punishment of it. I could eat a graven image this very minute, but am I complaining? Let's think of something else. We've just got to rise above our stomachs." At supper-time they did not feel the pangs of hunger which they had suffered earlier in the day. I suppose we're getting used to it, said Faith. I feel an awfully queer, all-gone sort of feeling, but I can't say I'm hungry. My head is funny, said Una. It goes round and round sometimes. But she went gamely to church with the others. If Mr. Meredith had not been so wholly wrapped up in and carried away with his subject he might have noticed the pale little face and hollow eyes in the man's pew beneath. But he noticed nothing, and his sermon was something longer than usual. Then, just before he gave out the final hymn, Una Meredith tumbled off the seat of the man's pew and lay in a dead faint on the floor. Mrs. Elder Clough was the first to reach her she caught the thin little body from the arms of white-faced terrified faith and carried it into the vestry mr meredith forgot the hymn and everything else and rushed madly after her the congregation dismissed itself as best it could oh mrs clow gasped faith is una dead have we killed her what is the matter with my child demanded the pale father she has just fainted i think said mrs clow oh here's the doctor thank goodness Gilbert did not find it a very easy thing to bring Una back to consciousness. He worked over her for a long time before her eyes opened. Then he carried her over to the manse, followed by Faith sobbing hysterically in her relief. "'She's just hungry, you know. She didn't eat a thing today. None of us did. We were all fasting.' "'Fasting?' said Mr. Meredith. And, "'Fasting?' said the doctor. "'Yes, to punish ourselves for singing Polly Wolly in the graveyard,' said Faith. My child, I don't want you to punish yourselves for that," said Mr. Meredith in distress. I gave you your little scolding and you were all penitent and I forgave you." Yes, but we HAVE to be punished, explained Faith. It's our rule—in our good conduct club, you know. If we do anything wrong or anything that is likely to hurt Father in the congregation we HAVE to punish ourselves. We are bringing ourselves up, you know, because there is nobody to do it. Mr. Meredith groaned, but the doctor got up from Una's side with an air of relief then this child simply fainted from lack of food and all she needs is a good square meal," he said. Mrs. Clow, will you be kind enough to see she gets it? And I think from Faith's story that they would all be the better for something to eat—or we shall have more faintings." "'I suppose we shouldn't have made Una fast,' said Faith remorsefully. "'When I think of it only Jerry and I should have been punished. We got up the concert, and we were the oldest. I sang Polly Wally just the same as the rest of you," said Una's weak little voice, so I had to be punished too. Mrs. Clow came with a glass of milk. Faith and Jerry and Carl sneaked off to the pantry and John Meredith went to his study, where he sat in the darkness for a long time alone with his bitter thoughts. So his children were bringing themselves up—because there was nobody to do it—struggling along amid their little perplexities without a hand to guide or a voice to counsel. Faith's innocently uttered phrase rankled in her father's mind like a barbed shaft. There was nobody to look after them—to comfort their little souls and care for their little bodies. How frail Una had looked, lying there on the vestry sofa in that long faint. How thin were her tiny hands! How pallid her little face! She looked as if she might slip away from him in a breath. Sweet little Una, of whom Cecilia had begged him to take such special care. Since his wife's death he had not felt such an agony of dread as when he had hung over his little girl in her unconsciousness. He must do something. But what? Should he ask Elizabeth Kirk to marry him? She was a good woman. She would be kind to his children. He might bring himself to do it if it were not for his love for Rosemary West. But until he had crushed that out he could not seek another woman in marriage. And he could not crush it out. He had tried and he could not. Rosemary had been in church that evening, for the first time since her return from Kingsport. He had caught a glimpse of her face in the back of the crowded church just as he had finished his sermon. His heart had given a fierce throb. He sat while the choir sang the collection piece with his head bent and tingling pulses. He had not seen her since the evening upon which he had asked her to marry him. When he had risen to give out the hymn, his hands were trembling and his pale face was flushed. Then Una's fainting spell had banished everything from his mind for a time. Now, in the darkness and solitude of the study, it rushed back. Rosemary was the only woman in the world for him. It was of no use for him to think of marrying any other. He could not commit such a sacrilege even for his children's sake. He must take up his burden alone. He must try to be a better—a more watchful father. He must tell his children not to be afraid to come to him with all their little problems. Then he lighted his lamp and took up a bulky new book, which was setting the theological world by the ears. He would read just one chapter to compose his mind. Five minutes later, he was lost to the world and the troubles of the world. End of chapter 28. Chapter 29 of Rainbow Valley by Lucy Maud Montgomery. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Karen Savage. CHAPTER Twenty Nine: A WEIRD TALE On an early June evening Rainbow Valley was an entirely delightful place, and the children felt it to be so, as they sat in the open glade where the bells rang elfishly on the tree-lovers and the white lady shook her green tresses. The wind was laughing and whistling about them like a lale glad-hearted comrade. The young ferns were spicy in the hollow. The wild cherry trees scattered over the valley among the dark firs were mistily white. The robins were whistling over in the maples behind Ingleside. Beyond, on the slopes of the glen, were blossoming orchards, sweet and mystic and wonderful, veiled in dusk. It was spring, and young things must be glad in spring. Everybody was glad in Rainbow Valley that evening—until Mary Vance froze their blood with the story of Henry Warren's ghost. Jem was not there. Jem spent his evenings now studying for his entrance examination in the Ingleside garret jerry was down near the pond trouting walter had been reading longfellow's sea-poems to the others and they were steeped in the beauty and mystery of the ships then they talked of what they would do when they were grown up where they would travel the far fair shores they would see nan and di meant to go to europe walter longed for the nile moaning past its egyptian sands and a glimpse of the sphinx faith opined rather dismally that she supposed she would have to be a missionary old Mrs. Taylor told her she ought to be—and then she would at least see India or China, those mysterious lands of the Orient. Carl's heart was set on African jungles. Una said nothing. She thought she would just like to stay at home. It was prettier here than anywhere else. It would be dreadful when they were all grown up and had to scatter over the world. The very idea made Una feel lonesome and homesick. But the others dreamed on delightedly until Mary Vance arrived and vanished poesy and dreams at one fell swoop. "'Lost, but I'm out of puff!' she exclaimed. "'I've run down that hill like sixty. I got an awful scare up there at the old Bailey place.' "'What frightened you?' asked Di. "'I, I dunno. I was poking about under them lilacs in the old garden, trying to see if there was any lilies of the valley out yet.' It was dark as a pocket there, and all at once I seen something stirring and rustlin' around at the other side of the garden in those cherry bushes. It was white. I tell you I didn't stop for a second, look. I flew over the dyke quicker than quick. I was sure it was Henry Warren's ghost." "'Who was Henry Warren?' asked Di. "'And why should he have a ghost?' asked Nan. "'Laws, did you never hear the story? And you brought up in the Glen. Well, wait a minute till I get my breath all back and I'll tell you.' Walter shivered delightsomely. He loved ghost stories. Their mystery, their dramatic climaxes, their eeriness gave him a fearful, exquisite pleasure. Longfellow instantly grew tame and commonplace. He threw the book aside and stretched himself out, propped upon his elbows to listen wholeheartedly, fixing his great luminous eyes on Mary's face. Mary wished he wouldn't look at her so. She felt that she could make a better job of the ghost story if Walter were not looking at her. She could put on several frills and invent a few artistic details to enhance the horror. As it was, she had to stick to the bare truth—or what had been told to her for the truth. "'Well,' she began, "'you know old Tom Bailey and his wife used to live in that house up there thirty years ago. He was an awful old rip, they say, and his wife wasn't much better. They'd no children of their own, but a sister of old Tom's died and left a little boy, this Henry Warren, and they took him. He was about twelve when he came to them and kind of undersized and delicate. They say Tom and his wife used him awful from the start—whipped him and starved him. Folks said they wanted him to die so's they could get the little bit of money his mother left for him. Henry didn't die right off, but he begun havin' fits—epileps, they called him—and he grew up kind of simple till he was about eighteen. His uncle used to thrash him in that garden up there cause it was back of the house where no one could see him. But folks could hear, and they say it was awful sometimes hearing poor Henry plead with his uncle not to kill him. But nobody dared interfere, cause old Tom was such a reprobate he'd have been sure to get square with him some way. He burned the barns of a man at Harbor Head who offended him. At last Henry died and his uncle and aunt gave out he died in one of his fits and that was all anybody ever knowed. But everybody said Tom had just up and killed him for keeps at last. And it wasn't long till it got around that Henry walked that old garden was haunted. He was heard there at nights moaning and crying. Old Tom and his wife got out, went out west, and never came back. The place got such a bad name nobody 'd buy or rent it. That's why it's all gone to ruin. That was thirty years ago, but Henry Warren's ghost haunts it yet." "'Do you believe that?' asked Nan scornfully. "'I don't.' Well. "'Good people have seen him and heard him,' retorted Mary. "'They say he appears and grovels on the ground and holds you by the legs and gibbers and moans like he did when he was alive. I thought of that as soon as I seen that white thing in the bushes and thought if it caught me like that and moaned I'd drop down dead on the spot, so I cut and run. It mightn't have been his ghost, but I wasn't going to take any chances with a haunt.' "'It was likely old Mrs. Stimson's white calf,' laughed I. "'It pastures in that garden. I've seen it. Maybe so but I'm not going to go home through the Bailey garden any more. Here's Jerry with a big string of trout and it's my turn to cook them. Jem and Jerry both say I'm the best cook in the Glen, and Cornelia told me I could bring up this batch of cookies. I all but dropped them when I saw Henry's ghost." Jerry hooted when he heard the ghost story, which Mary repeated as she fried the fish, touching it up a trifle or so since Walter had gone to help Faith to set the table. It made no impression on Jerry, but Faith and Una and Carl had been secretly much frightened, though they would never have given in to it. It was all right as long as the others were with them in the valley, but when the feast was over and the shadows fell they quaked with remembrance. Jerry went up to Ingleside with the Blythes to see Jem about something, and Mary Vance went around that way home. So Faith and Una and Carl had to go back to the manse alone. They walked very close together and gave the old Bailey Garden a wide berth. They did not believe that it was haunted, of course, but they would not go near it for all that. End of Chapter Twenty Nine. Chapter Thirty of Rainbow Valley by Lucy Maud Montgomery. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Karen Savage. Chapter Thirty: The Ghost on the Dyke. Somehow, Faith and Carl and Una could not shake off the hold which the story of Henry Warren's ghost had taken upon their imaginations. They had never believed in ghosts. Ghost tales they had heard a-plenty. Mary Vance had told some far more blood-curdling than this. But those tales were all of places and people and spooks far away and unknown. After the first half-awful, half-pleasant thrill of awe and terror they thought of them no more. But this story came home to them the old bailey garden was almost at their very door—almost in their beloved Rainbow Valley. They had passed and repassed it constantly. They had hunted for flowers in it. They had made short-cuts through it when they wished to go straight from the village to the valley. But never again. After the night when Mary Vance told them its gruesome tale they would not have gone through or near it on pain of death. Death! What was death compared to the unearthly possibility of falling into the clutches of Henry Warren's groveling ghost? One warm July evening the three of them were sitting under the tree lovers, feeling a little lonely. Nobody else had come near the valley that evening. Jem Blythe was away in Charlottetown riding on his entrance examinations. Jerry and Walter Blythe were off for a sail on the harbour with old Captain Crawford. Nan and Di and Rilla and Shirley had gone down the harbour road to visit Kenneth and Persis Ford who had come with their parents for a flying visit to the little old house of dreams. Nan had asked Faith to go with them but Faith had declined. She would never have admitted it, but she felt a little secret jealousy of Persis Ford, concerning whose wonderful beauty and city glamour she had heard a great deal. No, she wasn't going to go down there and play second fiddle to anybody. She and Una took their story-books to Rainbow Valley and read, while Carl investigated bugs along the banks of the brook. And all three were happy until they suddenly realized that it was twilight and that the old bailey garden was uncomfortably nearby. Carl came and sat down close to the girls. They all wished they had gone home a little sooner, but nobody said anything. Great velvety purple clouds heaped up in the west and spread over the valley. There was no wind and everything was suddenly strangely, dreadfully still. The marsh was full of thousands of fireflies. Surely some fairy parliament was being convened that night. Altogether Rainbow Valley was not a canny place just then. Faith looked fearfully up the valley to the old Bailey garden. Then, if anybody's blood ever did freeze, Faith Meredith certainly froze at that moment. The eyes of Carl and Una followed her entranced gaze, and chills began galloping up and down their spines also. For there, under the big tamarack tree on the tumble-down, grass-grown dyke of the Bailey garden, was something white—shapelessly white in the gathering gloom. The three Merediths sat and gazed as if turned to stone. "'It's—it's—the calf,' whispered Una at last. "'It's—too big—for the calf,' whispered Faith. Her mouth and lips were so dry she could hardly articulate the words. Suddenly Carl gasped. "'It's coming here!' The girls gave one last agonized glance. Yes, it was creeping down over the dyke as no calf ever did or could creep reason fled before sudden overmastering panic for the moment every one of the trio was firmly convinced that what they saw was henry warren's ghost carl sprang to his feet and bolted blindly with a simultaneous shriek the girls followed him like mad creatures they tore up the hill across the road and into the manse they had left aunt martha sewing in the kitchen she was not there they rushed to the study It was dark and tenantless. As with one impulse they swung around and made for Ingleside, but NOT across Rainbow Valley. Down the hill and through the Glen Street they flew on the wings of their wild terror, Carl in the lead, Una bringing up the rear. Nobody tried to stop them though everybody who saw them wondered what fresh devilment those manse youngsters were up to now. But at the gates of Ingleside they ran into Rosemary West who had just been in for a moment to return some borrowed books. She saw their ghastly faces and staring eyes. She realized that their poor little souls were wrung with some awful and real fear, whatever its cause. She caught Carl with one arm and Faith with the other. Una stumbled against her and held on desperately. "'Children, dear, what has happened?' she said. "'What has frightened you?' "'Henry Warren's ghost,' answered Carl through his chattering teeth. "'Henry Warren's ghost?' said amazed Rosemary, who had never heard the story yes sobbed faith hysterically it's there on the bailey dyke we saw it and it started to chase us rosemary herded the three distracted creatures to the ingleside veranda gilbert and anne were both away having also gone to the house of dreams but susan appeared in the doorway gaunt and practical and unghostlike. What is all this rumpus about she inquired Again the children gasped out their awful tale, while Rosemary held them close to her and soothed them with wordless comfort. "'Likely it was an owl,' said Susan unstirred. "'An owl!' The Meredith children never had any opinion of Susan's intelligence after that. "'It was bigger than a million owls,' said Carl, sobbing. Oh, how ashamed Carl was of that sobbing in after-days! And it—it grovelled, just as Mary said, and it was crawling down over the dyke to get at us. Do owls crawl?" Rosemary looked at Susan. They must have seen something to frighten them so, she said. I will go and see, said Susan coolly. Now, children, calm yourselves. Whatever you have seen it was not a ghost. As for poor Henry Warren, I feel sure he would be only too glad to rest quietly in his peaceful grave once he got there. No fear of him venturing back, and that you may tie to. If you can make them see reason, Miss West, I will find out the truth of the matter." Susan departed for Rainbow Valley, valiantly grasping a pitchfork which she found leaning against the back fence where the doctor had been working in his little hayfield. A pitchfork might not be much use against haunts, but it was a comforting sort of weapon. There was nothing to be seen in Rainbow Valley when Susan reached it. No white visitants appeared to be lurking in the shadowy, tangled old bailey garden. Susan marched boldly through it and beyond it and rapped with her pitchfork on the door of the little cottage on the other side, where Mrs. Stimson lived with her two daughters. Back at Ingleside Rosemary had succeeded in calming the children. They still sobbed a little from shock, but they were beginning to feel a lurking and salutary suspicion that they had made dreadful geese of themselves. This suspicion became a certainty when Susan finally returned. "'I have found out what your ghost was,' she said with a grim smile, sitting down on a rocker and fanning herself. Old Mrs. Stimpson has had a pair of factory cotton sheets bleaching in the bailey garden for a week. She spread them on the dyke under the tamarack tree because the grass was clean and short there. This evening she went out to take them in. She had her knitting in her hands so she hung the sheets over her shoulders by way of carrying them and then she must have dropped one of her needles, and find it she could not and has not yet. But she went down on her knees and crept about to hunt for it, and she was at that when she heard awful yells down in the valley and saw the three children tearing up the hill past her. She thought they had been bit by something and it gave her poor old heart such a turn that she could not move or speak, but just crouched there till they disappeared. Then she staggered back home, and they have been applying stimulants to her ever since, and her heart is in a terrible condition, and she says she will not get over this fright all summer." The Merediths sat crimson with a shame that even Rosemary's understanding sympathy could not remove. They sneaked off home, met Jerry at the man's gate, and made remorseful confession. A session of the Good Conduct Club was arranged for next morning. "'Wasn't Miss West sweet to us tonight?' whispered Faith in bed yes admitted una it is such a pity it changes people so much to be made stepmothers i don't believe it does said faith loyally end of chapter 30 chapter 31 of rainbow valley by lucy maud montgomery this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by karen savage chapter 31 carl does penance I don't see why we should be punished at all," said Faith, rather sulkily. We didn't do anything wrong—we couldn't help being frightened—and it won't do Father any harm. It was just an accident." "'You were cowards,' said Jerry, with judicial scorn, "'and you gave way to your cowardice. That is why you should be punished. Everybody will laugh at you about this and that is a disgrace to the family." "'If you knew how awful the whole thing was,' said Faith, with a shiver, "'you would think we'd been punished enough already. I wouldn't go through it again for anything in the whole world." "'I believe you'd have run yourself if you'd been there,' muttered Carl. "'From an old woman in a cotton sheet,' mocked Jerry. Ho, ho, ho." "'It didn't look a bit like an old woman,' cried Faith. "'It was just a great big white thing crawling about in the grass, just as Mary Vance said Henry Warren did. It's all very fine for you to laugh, Jerry Meredith, but you'd have laughed on the other side of your mouth if you'd been there. And how are we to be punished?' I don't think it's fair, but let's know what we have to do, Judge Meredith." "'The way I look at it,' said Jerry, frowning, "'is that Carl was the most to blame. He bolted first, as I understand it. Besides, he was a boy, so he should have stood his ground to protect you girls, whatever the danger was. You know that, Carl, don't you?' "'I suppose so,' growled Carl shamefacedly. "'Very well. This is to be your punishment. Tonight you'll sit on Mr. Hezekiah Pollock's tombstone in the graveyard alone until twelve o'clock." Carl gave a little shudder. The graveyard was not so very far from the old Bailey garden. It would be a trying ordeal, but Carl was anxious to wipe out his disgrace and prove that he was not a coward after all. "'All right,' he said sturdily. But how'll I know when it's twelve? The study windows are open and you'll hear the clock striking and mind that you are not to budge out of that graveyard until the last stroke. As for you girls, you've got to go without jam at supper for a week." Faith and Una looked rather blank. They were inclined to think that even Carl's comparatively short though sharp agony was lighter punishment than this long-drawn-out ordeal—a whole week of soggy bread without the saving grace of jam! But no shirking was permitted in the club. The girls accepted their lot with such philosophy as they could summon up. That night they all went to bed at nine, except Carl, who was already keeping vigil on the tombstone. Una slipped in to bid him good night. Her tender heart was wrung with sympathy. "'Oh, Carl, are you much scared?' she whispered. "'Not a bit,' said Carl airily. "'I won't sleep a wink till after twelve, said Una. "'If you get lonesome, just look up at our window and remember that I'm inside awake and thinking about you.' That will be a little company, won't it? I'll be all right. Don't you worry about me," said Carl. But in spite of his dauntless words, Carl was a pretty lonely boy when the lights went out in the manse. He had hoped his father would be in the study, as he so often was. He would not feel alone then. But that night Mr. Meredith had been summoned to the fishing village at the harbour mouth to see a dying man. He would not likely be back until after midnight. Carl must dree his weird alone. A Glen man went past carrying a lantern. The mysterious shadows caused by the lantern light went hurtling madly over the graveyard like a dance of demons or witches. Then they passed and darkness fell again. One by one the lights in the Glen went out. It was a very dark night with a cloudy sky and a raw east wind that was cold in spite of the calendar. Far away on the horizon was the low, dim luster of the Charlottetown lights. The wind wailed and sighed in the old fir trees. Mr. Alec Davis's tall monument gleamed whitely through the gloom. The willow beside it tossed long, writhing arms spectrally. At times, the gyrations of its boughs made it seem as if the monument were moving too. Carl curled himself up on the tombstone with his legs tucked under him. It wasn't precisely pleasant to hang them over the edge of the stone. Just suppose, Just suppose bony hands should reach up out of Mr. Pollock's grave under it and clutch him by the ankles." That had been one of Mary Vance's cheerful speculations one time when they had all been sitting there. It returned to haunt Carl now. He didn't believe those things. He didn't even really believe in Henry Warren's ghost. As for Mr. Pollock, he had been dead sixty years, so it wasn't likely he cared who sat on his tombstone now but there is something very strange and terrible in being awake when all the rest of the world is asleep. You are alone, then, with nothing but your own feeble personality to pit against the mighty principalities and powers of darkness. Carl was only ten, and the dead were all around him, and he wished—oh, he wished—that the clock would strike twelve. Would it never strike twelve? Surely Aunt Martha must have forgotten to wind it. And then it struck eleven, only eleven. He must stay yet another hour in that grim place. If only there were a few friendly stars to be seen. The darkness was so thick it seemed to press against his face. There was a sound as of stealthy passing footsteps all over the graveyard. Carl shivered, partly with prickling terror, partly with real cold. Then it began to rain—a chill, penetrating drizzle. Carl's thin little cotton blouse and shirt were soon wet through he felt chilled to the bone. He forgot mental terrors in his physical discomfort. But he must stay there till twelve. He was punishing himself and he was on his honour. Nothing had been said about rain, but it did not make any difference. When the clock finally struck twelve a drenched little figure crept stiffly down off Mr. Pollock's tombstone, made its way into the manse and upstairs to bed. Carl's teeth were chattering. He thought he would never get warm again. He was warm enough when morning came. Jerry gave one startled look at his crimson face and then rushed to call his father. Mr. Meredith came hurriedly, his own face ivory white from the pallor of his long night vigil by a deathbed. He had not got home until daylight. He bent over his little lad anxiously. Carl, are you sick? he said. That tombstone over there, said Carl. It's moving about. It's coming at me. Keep it away. Please, Mr. Meredith rushed to the telephone. In ten minutes Dr. Blythe was at the manse. Half an hour later a wire was sent to town for a trained nurse, and all the Glen knew that Carl Meredith was very ill with pneumonia and that Dr. Blythe had been seen to shake his head. Gilbert shook his head more than once in the fortnight that followed. Carl developed double pneumonia. There was one night when Mr. Meredith paced his study floor and Faith and Una huddled in their bedroom and cried, and Jerry, wild with remorse, refused to budge from the floor of the hall outside Carl's door. Dr. Blythe and the nurse never left the bedside. They fought death gallantly until the red dawn and they won the victory. Carl rallied and passed the crisis in safety. The news was phoned about the waiting Glen and people found out how much they really loved their minister and his children. "'I haven't had one decent night's sleep since I heard the child was sick,' Miss Cornelia told Anne. "'And Mary Vance has cried till those queer eyes of hers looked like burnt holes in a blanket. Is it true that Carl got pneumonia from staying out in the graveyard that wet night for a dare?' No. He was staying out there to punish himself for cowardice in that affair of the Warren ghost. It seems they have a club for bringing themselves up, and they punish themselves when they do wrong. Jerry told Mr. Meredith all about it. The poor little souls," said Miss Cornelia. Carl got better rapidly, for the congregation took enough nourishing things to the manse to furnish forth a hospital. Norman Douglas drove up every evening with a dozen fresh eggs and a jar of jersey cream. Sometimes he stayed an hour and bellowed arguments on predestination with Mr. Meredith in the study. Oftener, he drove on up to the hill that overlooked the glen. When Carl was able to go again to Rainbow Valley, they had a special feast in his honor, and the doctor came down and helped them with the fireworks. Mary Vance was there too, but she did not tell any ghost stories. Miss Cornelia had given her a talking on that subject, which Mary would not forget in a hurry. End of chapter 31. Chapter 32 of Rainbow Valley by Lucy Maud Montgomery. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Karen Savage. Chapter 32 Two Stubborn People. Rosemary West, on her way home from a music lesson at Ingleside, turned aside to the hidden spring in Rainbow Valley. She had not been there all summer. The beautiful little spot had no longer any allurement for her. The spirit of her young lover never came to the tryst now, and the memories connected with John Meredith were too painful and poignant. But she had happened to glance backward up the valley and had seen Norman Douglas vaulting as airily as a stripling over the old stone dyke in the bailey garden and thought he was on his way up the hill. If he overtook her she would have to walk home with him, and she was not going to do that. So she slipped at once behind the maples of the spring, hoping he had not seen her and would pass on. But Norman had seen her, and what was more was in pursuit of her. He had been wanting for some time to have a talk with Rosemary, but she had always, so it seemed, avoided him. Rosemary had never, at any time, liked Norman Douglas very well. His bluster, his temper, his noisy hilarity had always antagonized her. Long ago she had often wondered how Ellen could possibly be attracted to him. Norman Douglas was perfectly aware of her dislike and he chuckled over it. It never worried Norman if people did not like him. It did not even make him dislike them in return, for he took it as a kind of extorted compliment. He thought Rosemary a fine girl, and he meant to be an excellent, generous brother-in-law to her. But before he could be her brother-in-law he had to have a talk with her. So, having seen her leaving Ingleside as he stood in the doorway of a glen store, he had straightway plunged into the valley to overtake her. Rosemary was sitting pensively on the maple seat where John Meredith had been sitting on that evening nearly a year ago. The tiny spring shimmered and dimpled under its fringe of ferns. Ruby-red gleams of sunset fell through the arching boughs. A tall clump of perfect asters grew at her side. The little spot was as dreamy and witching and evasive as any retreat of fairies and dryads in ancient forests. Into it, Norman Douglas bounced scattering and annihilating its charm in a moment. His personality seemed to swallow the place up. There was simply nothing there but Norman Douglas—big, red-bearded, complacent. "'Good evening,' said Rosemary coldly, standing up. "'Evening, girl. Sit down again—sit down again. I want to have a talk with you. Bless the girl! What's she looking at me like that for? I don't want to eat you. I've had my supper. Sit down and be civil.' "'I can hear what you have to say quite as well here,' said Rosemary. So you can, girl, if you use your ears. I only wanted you to be comfortable. You look so durned uncomfortable standing there. Well, I'll sit anyway." Norman accordingly sat down in the very place John Meredith had once sat. The contrast was so ludicrous that Rosemary was afraid she would go off into a peal of hysterical laughter over it. Norman cast his hat aside, placed his huge red hands on his knees, and looked up at her with eyes a-twinkle. Come, girl, don't be so stiff," he said ingratiatingly. When he liked he could be very ingratiating. Let's have a reasonable, sensible, friendly chat. There's something I want to ask you. Ellen says she won't, so it's up to me to do it." Rosemary looked down at the spring, which seemed to have shrunk to the size of a dewdrop. Norman gazed at her in despair. "'Durn it all! You might help a fellow out a bit,' he burst forth. "'What is it you want me to help you say?' asked Rosemary scornfully. "'You know as well as I do, girl. Don't be putting on your tragedy airs. No wonder Ellen was scared to ask you. Look here, girl. Ellen and I want to marry each other. That's plain English, isn't it? Got that? And Ellen says she can't unless you give her back some tom-fool promise she made. Come now, will you do it? Will you do it?' "'Yes,' said Rosemary." Norman bounced up and seized her reluctant hand. "'Good! I knew you would. I told Ellen you would. I knew it would only take a minute Now, girl, you go home and tell Ellen, and we'll have a wedding in a fortnight and you'll come and live with us. We shan't leave you to roost on that hilltop like a lonely crow, don't you worry. I know you hate me, but, Lord, it'll be great fun living with someone that hates me. Life'll have some spice in it after this. Ellen will roast me and you'll freeze me. I won't have a dull moment." Rosemary did not condescend to tell him that nothing would ever induce her to live in his house. She let him go striding back to the glen, oozing delight and complacency, and she walked slowly up the hill home. She had known this was coming ever since she had returned from Kingsport and found Norman Douglas established as a frequent evening caller. His name was never mentioned between her and Ellen, but the very avoidance of it was significant. It was not in Rosemary's nature to feel bitter, or she would have felt very bitter. She was coldly civil to Norman and she made no difference in any way with Ellen but Ellen had not found much comfort in her second courtship. She was in the garden, attended by St. George, when Rosemary came home. The two sisters met in the dahlia walk. St. George sat down on the gravel walk between them and folded his glossy black tail gracefully around his white paws with all the indifference of a well-fed, well-bred, well-groomed cat. "'Did you ever see such dahlias?' demanded Ellen proudly. "'They are just the finest we've ever had.' Rosemary had never cared for Dahlia's. Their presence in the garden was her concession to Ellen's taste. She noticed one huge mottled one of crimson and yellow that lorded it over all the others. That Dahlia, she said, pointing to it, is exactly like Norman Douglas. It might easily be his twin brother. Ellen's dark-browed face flushed. She admired the Dahlia in question, but she knew Rosemary did not, and that no compliment was intended. But she dared not resent Rosemary's speech—poor Ellen dared not resent anything just then. And it was the first time Rosemary had ever mentioned Norman's name to her. She felt that this portended something. "'I met Norman Douglas in the valley,' said Rosemary, looking straight at her sister. And he told me you and he wanted to be married, if I would give you permission." "'Yes?' "'What did you say?' asked Ellen, trying to speak naturally and offhandedly and failing completely. She could not meet Rosemary's eyes. She looked down at St. George's sleek back and felt horribly afraid. Rosemary had either said she would or she wouldn't. If she would, Ellen would feel so ashamed and remorseful that she would be a very uncomfortable bride-elect, and if she wouldn't—well, Ellen had once learned to live without Norman Douglas, but she had forgotten the lesson and felt that she could never learn it again. I said that as far as I was concerned you were at full liberty to marry each other as soon as you liked," said Rosemary. "'Thank you,' said Ellen, still looking at St. George. Rosemary's face softened. "'I hope you'll be happy, Ellen,' she said gently. "'Oh, Rosemary!' Ellen looked up in distress. "'I'm so ashamed. I don't deserve it, after all I said to you.' "'We won't speak about that,' said Rosemary hurriedly and decidedly. "'But—but—' persisted Ellen. You are free now, too, and it's not too late. John Meredith—Ellen West!" Rosemary had a little spark of temper under all her sweetness and it flashed forth now in her blue eyes. Have you quite lost your senses in every respect? Do you suppose for an instant that I am going to go to John Meredith and say meekly, "'Please, sir, I've changed my mind, and please, sir, I hope you haven't changed yours.' Is that what you want me to do?" "'No, no, but—' A little encouragement, he would come back. Never. He despises me, and rightly. No more of this, Ellen. I bear you no grudge. Marry whom you like, but no meddling in my affairs. Then you must come and live with me, said Ellen. I shall not leave you here alone. Do you really think that I would go and live in Norman Douglas's house? Why not? cried Ellen half angrily, despite her humiliation. Rosemary began to laugh. Ellen? I thought you had a sense of humour. Can you see me doing it?" I don't see why you wouldn't. His house is big enough. You'd have your share of it to yourself. He wouldn't interfere. Ellen, the thing is not to be thought of. Don't bring this up again." Then, said Ellen coldly and determinedly, I shall not marry him. I shall not leave you here alone. That is all there is to be said about it. Nonsense, Ellen. It is not nonsense. It is my firm decision. It would be absurd for you to think of living here by yourself—a mile from any other house. If you won't come with me, I'll stay with you. Now we won't argue the matter, so don't try." "'I shall leave Norman to do the arguing,' said Rosemary. "'I'll deal with Norman. I can manage him. I would never have asked you to give me back my promise—never. But I had to tell Norman why I couldn't marry him, and he said he would ask you. I couldn't prevent him. You need not suppose you are the only person in the world who possesses self-respect.' I never dreamed of marrying and leaving you here alone, and you'll find I can be as determined as yourself." Rosemary turned away and went into the house, with a shrug of her shoulders. Ellen looked down at St. George, who had never blinked an eyelash or stirred a whisker during the whole interview. St. George, this world would be a dull place without the men, I'll admit. But I'm almost tempted to wish there wasn't one of them in it. Look at all the trouble and bother they've made right here, George torn our happy old life completely up by the roots, Saint. John Meredith began it and Norman Douglas has finished it. And now both of them have to go into limbo. Norman is the only man I ever met who agrees with me that the Kaiser of Germany is the most dangerous creature alive on this earth. And I can't marry this sensible person because my sister is stubborn and I'm stubborner. Mark my words, St. George. The minister would come back if she raised her little finger. But she won't, George. She'll never do it. She won't even crook it. And I don't dare meddle, Saint. I won't sulk, George—Rosemary didn't sulk, so I'm determined I won't either, Saint. Norman will tear up the turf, but the long and short of it is, Saint George, that all of us old fools must just stop thinking of marrying. Well, well. Despair is a free man, hope is a slave, Saint. So now come into the house, George, and I'll solace you with a saucer full of cream. Then there will be one happy and contented creature on this hill at least." End of chapter thirty two. Chapter thirty three of Rainbow Valley by Lucy Maud Montgomery. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Karen Savage. Chapter thirty three. Carl is not whipped. There is something I think I ought to tell you, said Mary Vance mysteriously. She and Faith and Una were walking arm in arm through the village, having foregathered at Mr. Flagg's store. Una and Faith exchanged looks which said, "'Now something disagreeable is coming.' When Mary Vance thought she ought to tell them things there was seldom much pleasure in the hearing. They often wondered why they kept on liking Mary Vance, for like her they did in spite of everything. To be sure she was generally a stimulating and agreeable companion. If only she would not have those convictions that it was her duty to tell them things. Do you know that Rosemary West won't marry your pa because she thinks you are such a wild lot? She's afraid she couldn't bring you upright and so she turned him down." Una's heart thrilled with secret exultation. She was very glad to hear that Miss West would not marry her father. But Faith was rather disappointed. "'How do you know?' she asked. "'Oh, everybody's saying it. I heard Mrs. Elliot talking it over with Mrs. Doctor. They thought I was too far away to hear, but I've got ears like a cat's. Mrs. Elliot said she hadn't a doubt that Rosemary was afraid to try stepmothering you because you'd got such a reputation. Your pa never goes up the hill now—neither does Norman Douglas. Folks say Ellen has jilted him just to get square with him for jilting her ages ago. But Norman is going about declaring he'll get her yet." And I think you ought to know you've spoiled your pa's match, and I think it's a pity, for he's bound to marry somebody before long, and Rosemary West would have been the best wife I know of for him." "'You told me all stepmothers were cruel and wicked,' said Una. "'Oh, well,' said Mary rather confusedly, "'they're mostly awful cranky, I know. But Rosemary West couldn't be very mean to anyone. I tell you, if your pa turns round and marries Emmeline Drew, you'll wish you'd behaved yourselves better and not frightened Rosemary out of it. It's awful that you've got such a reputation that no decent woman'll marry your pawn account of you. Of course I know that half the yarns that are told about you ain't true, but give a dog a bad name. Why, some folks are saying that it was Jerry and Carl that threw the stones through Mrs. Stimson's window the other night when it was really them two Boyd boys. But I'm afraid it was Carl that put the eel in old Mrs. Carr's buggy, though I said at first I wouldn't believe it until I'd better proof than old Kitty Alec's word. I told Mrs. Elliot so right to her face. What did Carl do? cried Faith. Well, they say—now mind, I'm only telling you what people say, so there's no use in your blaming me for it—that Carl and a lot of other boys were fishing eels over the bridge one evening last week. Mrs. Carr drove past in that old rattle-trap buggy of hers with the open back, and Carl he just up and threw a big eel into the back. When poor old Mrs. Carr was driving up the hill by Ingleside that eel came squirming out between her feet she thought it was a snake and she just gave one awful screech and stood up and jumped clean over the wheels. The horse bolted, but it went home and no damage was done. But Mrs. Carr jarred her legs most terrible and has had nervous spasms ever since whenever she thinks of the eel. Say, it was a rotten trick to play on the poor old soul. She's a decent body if she is as queer as Dick's hatband." Faith and Una looked at each other again. This was a matter for the Good Conduct Club. They would not talk it over with Mary. "'There goes your pa,' said Mary, as Mr. Meredith passed them, and never seein' us no more'n if we weren't there. Well, I'm gettin' so as I don't mind it, but there are folks who do." Mr. Meredith had not seen them, but he was not walking along in his usual dreamy and abstracted fashion. He strode up the hill in agitation and distress. Mrs. Alec Davis had just told him the story of Carl and the eel. She had been very indignant about it. Old Mrs. Carr was her third cousin. Mr. Meredith was more than indignant. He was hurt and shocked. He had not thought Carl would do anything like this. He was not inclined to be hard on pranks of heedlessness or forgetfulness, but this was different—this had a nasty tang in it. When he reached home he found Carl on the lawn, patiently studying the habits and customs of a colony of wasps. Calling him into the study, Mr. Meredith confronted him with a sterner face than any of his children had ever seen before and asked him if the story were true. Yes," said Carl, flushing, but meeting his father's eyes bravely. Mr. Meredith groaned. He had hoped that there had been at least exaggeration. Tell me the whole matter," he said. The boys were fishing for eels over the bridge," said Carl. Link Drew had caught a whopper—I mean an awful big one—the biggest eel I ever saw. He caught it right at the start and had been lying in his basket a long time, still as still. I thought it was dead—honest I did. Then old Mrs. Carr drove over the bridge and she called us all young varmints and told us to go home. And we hadn't said a word to her, Father, truly. So when she drove back again after going to the store the boys dared me to put Link's eel in her buggy. I thought it was so dead it couldn't hurt her and I threw it in. Then the eel came to life on the hill and we heard her scream and saw her jump out. I was awful sorry. That's all, Father." It was not quite as bad as Mr. Meredith had feared, but it was quite bad enough. I must punish you, Carl, he said sorrowfully. Yes, I know, father. I—I must whip you." Carl winced. He had never been whipped. Then, seeing how badly his father felt, he said cheerfully, All right, father. Mr. Meredith misunderstood his cheerfulness and thought him insensible. He told Carl to come to the study after supper, and when the boy had gone out, he flung himself into his chair and groaned again. He dreaded the evening sevenfold more than Carl did. The poor minister did not even know what he should whip his boy with. What was used to whip boys? Rods? Canes? No, that would be too brutal. A timber switch, then? And he, John Meredith, must hie him to the woods and cut one. It was an abominable thought. Then a picture presented itself unbidden to his mind. He saw Mrs. Carr's wizened, nutcracker little face at the appearance of that reviving eel. He saw her sailing witch-like over the buggy wheels. Before he could prevent himself the minister laughed. Then he was angry with himself—and angrier still with Carl. He would get that switch at once. And it must not be too limber after all." Carl was talking the matter over in the graveyard with Faith and Una, who had just come home. They were horrified at the idea of his being whipped—and by Father, who had never done such a thing. But they agreed soberly that it was just. You know it was a dreadful thing to do," sighed Faith, and you never owned up in the club. I forgot," said Carl, besides, I didn't think any harm came of it. I didn't know she jarred her legs. But I'm to be whipped and that will make things square." Will it hurt very much?" said Una, slipping her hand into Carl's. Oh, not so much, I guess," said Carl, gamely. Anyhow, I'm not going to cry, no matter how much it hurts. It would make Father feel so bad if I did. He's all cut up now. I wish I could whip myself hard enough and save him doing it." After supper, at which Carl had eaten little and Mr. Meredith nothing at all, both went silently into the study. The switch lay on the table. Mr. Meredith had had a bad time getting a switch to suit him. He cut one, then felt it was too slender. Carl had done a really indefensible thing. Then he cut another—it was far too thick. After all, Carl had thought the eel was dead. The third one suited him better, but as he picked it up from the table it seemed very thick and heavy—more like a stick than a switch. "'Hold out your hand,' he said to Carl." Carl threw back his head and held out his hand unflinchingly. But he was not very old and he could not quite keep a little fear out of his eyes. Mr. Meredith looked down into those eyes. Why, they were Cecilia's eyes—her very eyes and in them was the self-same expression he had once seen in Cecilia's eyes when she had come to him to tell him something she had been a little afraid to tell him. Here were her eyes in Carl's little white face, and six weeks ago he had thought through one endless terrible night that his little lad was dying. John Meredith threw down the switch. "'Go,' he said. "'I cannot whip you.' Carl fled to the graveyard, feeling that the look on his father's face was worse than any whipping. "'Is it over so soon?' asked Faith. She and Una had been holding hands and setting teeth on the Pollock tombstone. "'He—he didn't whip me at all,' said Carl with a sob. And—I wish he had. And he's in there, feeling just awful.' Una slipped away. Her heart yearned to comfort her father. As noiselessly as a little gray mouse she opened the study door and crept in. The room was dark with twilight. Her father was sitting at his desk, his back was towards her, his head was in his hands. He was talking to himself—broken, anguished words. But Una heard—heard and understood with the sudden illumination that comes to sensitive, unmothered children. As silently as she had come in she slipped out and closed the door. John Meredith went on talking out his pain in what he deemed his undisturbed solitude. End of chapter 33. Chapter 34 of Rainbow Valley by Lucy Maud Montgomery. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Karen Savage. Chapter 34 Una Visits the Hill. Una went upstairs. Carl and Faith were already on their way through the early moonlight to Rainbow Valley having heard therefrom the elfin lilt of Jerry's Jews' harp and having guessed that the blights were there and fun afoot. Una had no wish to go. She sought her own room first, where she sat down on her bed and had a little cry. She did not want anybody to come in her dear mother's place. She did not want a stepmother who would hate her and make her father hate her. But father was so desperately unhappy and if she could do ANYTHING to make him happier she MUST do it. There was only one thing she could do, and she had known the moment she had left the study that she MUST do it. But it was a very hard thing to do. After Una cried her heart out she wiped her eyes and went to the spare room. It was dark and rather musty, for the blind had not been drawn up nor the window opened for a long time. Aunt Martha was no fresh-air fiend. But as nobody ever thought of shutting a door in the manse, this did not matter so much, save when some unfortunate minister came to stay all night and was compelled to breathe the spare-room atmosphere. There was a closet in the spare room and far back in the closet a gray silk dress was hanging. Una went into the closet and shut the door, went down on her knees and pressed her face against the soft silken folds. It had been her mother's wedding dress. It was still full of a sweet, faint, haunting perfume like lingering love. Una always felt very close to her mother there, as if she were kneeling at her feet with her head in her lap. She went there once in a long while when life was too hard. "'Mother,' she whispered to the gray silk gown, "'I will never forget you, mother, and I'll always love you best. But I have to do it, mother, because father is so very unhappy. I know you wouldn't want him to be unhappy and I'll be very good to her mother and try to love her even if she is like Mary Vance said stepmothers always were." Una carried some fine spiritual strength away from her secret shrine. She slept peacefully that night, with the tear stains still glistening on her sweet, serious little face. The next afternoon she put on her best dress and hat. They were shabby enough. Every other little girl in the Glen had new clothes that summer except Faith and Una. Mary Vance had a lovely dress of white embroidered lawn with scarlet silk sash and shoulder bows. But today Una did not mind her shabbiness. She only wanted to be very neat. She washed her face carefully. She brushed her black hair until it was as smooth as satin. She tied her shoelaces carefully, having first sewed up two runs in her one pair of good stockings. She would have liked to black her shoes, but she could not find any blacking. Finally, she slipped away from the manse, down through Rainbow Valley, up through the Whispering Woods, and out to the road that ran past the house on the hill. It was quite a long walk, and Una was tired and warm when she got there. She saw Rosemary West sitting under a tree in the garden and stole past the dahlia beds to her. Rosemary had a book in her lap, but she was gazing afar across the harbor and her thoughts were sorrowful enough. Life had not been pleasant lately in the house on the hill. Ellen had not sulked—Ellen had been a brick—but things can be felt that are never said, and at times the silence between the two women was intolerably eloquent. All the many familiar things that had once made life sweet had a flavor of bitterness now. Norman Douglas made periodical eruptions also, bullying and coaxing Ellen by turns. It would end, Rosemary believed, by his dragging Ellen off with him some day and Rosemary felt that she would almost be glad when it happened. Existence would be horribly lonely, then, but it would no longer be charged with dynamite. She was roused from her unpleasant reverie by a timid little touch on her shoulder. Turning, she saw Una Meredith. Why, Una, dear, did you walk up here in all this heat? Yes, said Una. I came to—I came to—but she found it very hard to say what she had come to do. Her voice failed, her eyes filled with tears. "'Why, Una, little girl, what is the trouble? Don't be afraid to tell me.' Rosemary put her arm around the thin little form and drew the child close to her. Her eyes were very beautiful, her touch so tender that Una found courage. "'I came—to ask you—to marry father,' she gasped. Rosemary was silent for a moment from sheer dumbfoundment. She stared at Una blankly. "'Oh, don't be angry, please, dear Miss West,' said Una pleadingly. "'You see, everybody is saying that you wouldn't marry father because we are so bad. He is very unhappy about it. So I thought I would come and tell you that we are never bad on purpose and if you will only marry father we will all try to be good and do just what you tell us. I'm sure you won't have any trouble with us. Please, Miss West." Rosemary had been thinking rapidly. Gossiping surmise, she saw, had put this mistaken idea into Una's mind. She must be perfectly frank and sincere with the child. "'Una, dear,' she said softly, "'it isn't because of you poor little souls that I cannot be your father's wife. I never thought of such a thing. You are not bad. I never supposed you were. There—' There was another reason altogether, Una.' "'Don't you like father?' asked Una, lifting reproachful eyes. Oh, Miss West, you don't know how nice he is. I'm sure he'd make you a good husband." Even in the midst of her perplexity and distress, Rosemary couldn't help a twisted little smile. Oh, don't laugh, Miss West," Una cried passionately. Father feels dreadful about it. I think you're mistaken, dear," said Rosemary. I'm not. I'm sure I'm not. Oh, Miss West, Father was going to whip Carl yesterday. Carl had been naughty. And Father couldn't do it because, you see— He had no practice in whipping. So when Carl came out and told his father felt so bad I slipped into the study to see if I could help him. He likes me to comfort him, Miss West. And he didn't hear me come in and I heard what he was saying. I'll tell you, Miss West, if you'll let me whisper it in your ear." Una whispered earnestly. Rosemary's face turned crimson. So John Meredith still cared. HE hadn't changed his mind. And he must care intensely if he had said that care more than she had ever supposed he did. She sat still for a moment, stroking Una's hair. Then she said, "'Will you take a little letter from me to your father, Una?' "'Oh, are you going to marry him, Miss West?' asked Una eagerly. "'Perhaps, if he really wants me to,' said Rosemary, blushing again. "'I'm glad—I'm glad,' said Una bravely. Then she looked up, with quivering lips. "'Oh, Miss West! You won't turn father against us. You won't make him hate us, will you?" she said beseechingly. Rosemary stared again. Una Meredith, do you think I would do such a thing? Whatever put such an idea into your head? Mary Vance said stepmothers were all like that and that they all hated their stepchildren and made their father hate them. She said they just couldn't help it—just being stepmothers made them like that. You poor child! And yet you came up here and asked me to marry your father because you wanted to make him happy. You're a darling—a heroine. As Ellen would say, you're a brick. Now listen to me very closely, dearest. Mary Vance is a silly little girl who doesn't know very much, and she is dreadfully mistaken about some things. I would never dream of trying to turn your father against you. I would love you all dearly. I don't want to take your own mother's place—she must always have that in your hearts but neither have I any intention of being a stepmother. I want to be your friend and helper and chum. Don't you think that would be nice, Una, if you and Faith and Carl and Jerry could just think of me as a good, jolly chum—a big, older sister?" Oh, it would be lovely," cried Una, with a transfigured face. She flung her arms impulsively around Rosemary's neck. She was so happy that she felt as if she could fly on wings. Do the others— do Faith and the boys have the same idea you had about stepmothers? No. Faith never believed Mary Vance. I was dreadfully foolish to believe her either. Faith loves you already. She has loved you ever since poor Adam was eaten. And Jerry and Carl will think it is jolly. Oh, Miss West, when you come to live with us, will you could you teach me to cook a little and sew and 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 do things? I don't know anything. I won't be much trouble. I'll try to learn fast. Darling. I'll teach you and help you all I can. Now, you won't say a word to anybody about this, will you—not even to Faith—until your father himself tells you you may? And you'll stay and have tea with me. Oh, thank you. But—but I think I'd rather go right back and take the letter to father," faltered Una. "'You see, he'll be glad that much sooner, Miss West.' "'I see,' said Rosemary. She went to the house, wrote a note, and gave it to Una. When that small damsel had run off—a palpitating bundle of happiness—Rosemary went to Ellen, who was shelling peas on the back porch. "'Ellen,' she said. "'Una Meredith has just been here to ask me to marry her father.' Ellen looked up and read her sister's face. "'Are you going to?' she said. "'It's quite likely.' Ellen went on shelling peas for a few minutes. Then she suddenly put her hands up to her own face. There were tears in her black-browed eyes. "I," I hope we'll all be happy," she said, between a sob and a laugh. Down at the manse Una Meredith, warm, rosy, triumphant, marched boldly into her father's study and laid a letter on the desk before him. His pale face flushed as he saw the clear, fine handwriting he knew so well. He opened the letter. It was very short, but he shed twenty years as he read it. Rosemary asked him if he could meet her that evening at sunset, by the spring in Rainbow Valley. End of chapter thirty four. Chapter thirty five of Rainbow Valley by Lucy Maud Montgomery. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Karen Savage. Chapter thirty five. Let the Piper Come. And so, said Miss Cornelia, the double wedding is to be some time about the middle of this month. There was a faint chill in the air of the early September evening, so Anne had lighted her ever-ready fire of driftwood in the big living-room, and she and Miss Cornelia basked in its very flicker. "'It is so delightful—especially in regard to Mr. Meredith and Rosemary,' said Anne. "'I'm as happy in the thought of it as I was when I was getting married myself. I felt exactly like a bride again last evening when I was up on the hill seeing Rosemary's trousseau." They tell me her things are fine enough for a princess," said Susan from a shadowy corner where she was cuddling her brown boy. I have been invited up to see them, also, and I intend to go some evening. I understand that Rosemary is to wear white silk and a veil, but Ellen is to be married in navy blue. I have no doubt, Mrs. Dr. dear, that that is very sensible of her, but for my own part I have always felt that if I were ever married I would prefer the white and the veil, as being more bride-like. A vision of Susan in white and a veil presented itself before Anne's inner vision and was almost too much for her. "'As for Mr. Meredith,' said Miss Cornelia, "'even his engagement has made a different man of him. He isn't half so dreamy and absent-minded, believe me. I was so relieved when I heard that he had decided to close the manse and let the children visit round while he was away on his honeymoon. If he had left them and old Aunt Martha there alone for a month I should have expected to wake every morning and see the place burned down." "'Aunt Martha and Jerry are coming here,' said Anne. "Carl is going to Elder Clowes. I haven't heard where the girls are going." "'Oh, I'm going to take them,' said Miss Cornelia. Of course I was glad to. But Mary would have given me no peace till I asked them anyway." The ladies' aide is going to clean the manse from top to bottom before the bride and groom come back, and Norman Douglas has arranged to fill the cellar with vegetables. Nobody ever saw or heard anything quite like Norman Douglas these days, believe me. He's so tickled that he's going to marry Ellen West after wanting her all his life. If I was Ellen—but then I'm not, and if she is satisfied I can very well be. I heard her say years ago, when she was a schoolgirl, that she didn't want a tame puppy for a husband. There's nothing tame about Norman, believe me." The sun was setting over Rainbow Valley. The pond was wearing a beautiful tissue of purple and gold and green and crimson. A faint blue haze rested on the eastern hill, over which a great pale round moon was just floating up like a silver bubble. They were all there, squatted in the little open glade—Faith and Una, Jerry and Carl, Jem and Walter, Nan and Di, and Mary Vance. They had been having a special celebration, for it would be Jem's last evening in Rainbow Valley. On the morrow he would leave for Charlottetown to attend Queen's Academy. Their charmed circle would be broken and, in spite of the jollity of their little festival, there was a hint of sorrow in every gay young heart. "'See? There is a great golden palace over there in the sunset,' said Walter, pointing. "'Look at the shining tower and the crimson banner streaming from them. Perhaps a conqueror is riding home from battle, and they are hanging them out to do honour to him." "'Oh, I wish we had the old days back again!' exclaimed Jem. "'I'd love to be a soldier—a great triumphant general. I'd give everything to see a big battle." Well Jem was to be a soldier and see a greater battle than had ever been fought in the world. But that was as yet far in the future, and the mother, whose first-born son he was, was wont to look on her boys and thank God that the brave days of old which Jem longed for were gone for ever and that never would it be necessary for the sons of Canada to ride forth to battle for the ashes of their fathers and the temples of their gods. The shadow of the great conflict had not yet made felt any forerunner of its chill. The lads who were to fight, and perhaps fall, on the fields of France and Flanders, Gallipoli and Palestine were still roguish schoolboys with a fair life in prospect before them. The girls whose hearts were to be wrung were yet fair little maidens, a star with hopes and dreams. Slowly the banners of the sunset city gave up their crimson and gold. Slowly the conqueror's pageant faded out. Twilight crept over the valley and the little group grew silent. Walter had been reading again that day in his beloved book of myths, and he remembered how he had once fancied the Pied Piper coming down the valley on an evening just like this. He began to speak dreamily, partly because he wanted to thrill his companions a little, partly because something apart from him seemed to be speaking through his lips. "'The Piper is coming nearer,' he said. He is nearer than he was that evening I saw him before. His long shadowy cloak is blowing around him. He pipes. He pipes—and we must follow—Jem and Carl and Jerry and I—round and round the world. Listen—listen—can't you hear his wild music?" The girls shivered. "'You know you're only pretending,' protested Mary Vance, and I wish you wouldn't. You make it too real. I hate that old piper of yours." But Jem sprang up with a gay laugh. He stood up on a little hillock, tall and splendid, with his open brow and his fearless eyes. There were thousands like him all over the land of the maple. Let the piper come and welcome! He cried, waving his hand. I'll follow him gladly round and round the world. End of Chapter Thirty Five. End of Rainbow Valley by Lucy Maud Montgomery.